But I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Numbers 21. Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. And additionally, bookmark John 3. So we'll begin in Numbers 21, but stick a bookmark in John 3. Well, you might be a little surprised this morning that we are not in 1 Samuel 15. I was planning on 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Started working on it Tuesday morning, and Friday morning, I was a bit worried. Uh, 1 Samuel 15 is is a very important and weighty text. It's a text where I I wanted as many people as possible to, to hear it. There are some difficult things in that text. Uh, There's some confusing things in that text, and so I was going to break it up into three weeks. And I thought, well, if we have ten people show up because of the ice, they're going to miss the first sermon on 1 Samuel 15, which is we're looking at the slaughter of the Amalekites. And so um, as we go forward, I figured, well, if you miss the first one, there might be some questions about that. And so I decided to just put it off a week and do a standalone sermon So I was going back through looking at previous sermons, and the one I'm going to preach this morning is one that just a few of you probably heard. I've preached it back in either April or May of 2018. You know, when you're a a pastor and you're sending your resume to a session at a church, sometimes you'll get invited to come and You have one shot. You aren't preaching for your life, but you're preaching for a job. And I preached this sermon at Trinity in the spring of 2018. And so I've revisited it and revised it. It's not identical um, because I've found, you know the saying that you never cross the same river twice. Uh, You never preach the same sermon twice. I guess you can just hit print and just go, but the things are... Things will be different. And so I've revised this, uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And uh, I figure enough time has passed to to hit it again. But let's pray and then we'll uh, read our passage together. Almighty God, we remember this morning that you have spoken to us through your word. And your word is sufficient for all faith and practice. Meaning it's sufficient for everything we need to know concerning you and your salvation. And for practice, how we live our lives on a daily basis. Your word is sufficient. And you've promised that Through the hearing of it, faith comes. So, Lord, I do ask for that work this morning, that what I'm about to do would not simply be a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal, but would you speak to your people through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers 21. Join me as I read verses 4 through 9. 
From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. There's three things I want you to see in this passage. Again, it is very organized because this was oh, this was my first sermon. My preaching lab professor would have been very proud. Three things I want you to see in this passage. Number one, impatience has a way of leading us astray. Impatience has a way of leading us astray. Number two, fatherly discipline strangely restores us. Fatherly discipline strangely restores us. And then number three, the very thing that is killing us leads to life. The very thing that is killing us leads to life. And we'll begin in verses four and five, and we'll see the way impatience has a way of leading us astray. In verse 4, we read, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, the people of Israel have almost completed their time in the wilderness. We're in Numbers 21, after all. They'd been brought out of Egypt. They'd been brought safely through the Red Sea waters. The Lord God led them. He provided for all their needs. He gave them quail and manna for food. He caused water to spring from rocks. He protected them from hostile tribes. And they've been wandering for 40 years. Delayed and delayed because of their sin. But now they're close. They're a short march away from finally entering the land of promise. But there's one final obstacle that stands in their way, and it's the land of Edom. I remind you that the people of Edom are the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Remember Jacob who dreamed of the ladder going from earth to heaven? Jacob who wrestled with God? Jacob, the father of those twelve sons, whose families would become the twelve tribes of Israel? Esau was his brother. Esau, the hairy hunter. 
Esau, the brother who exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew. Esau, who had his father's blessing stolen by his lying brother and scheming mother. That's the family we're talking about. And what happened between those two brothers led to an estrangement between them, and it led to a severe hatred between their descendants. So from Jacob, you have the children of Israel, and from Esau, you have the Amalekites, who we'll talk about next week. There was a man named Amalek, who is the grandson of Esau, so you have the Amalekites, and then you also have the Edomites. And the context for today's passage is that the Edomites, out of their hatred for Israel, would not allow them to pass peacefully through their land. And this is recorded back in the previous chapter in Numbers 20. Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Brother, you know all the hardship we've experienced at the hand of the Egyptians. You know how the Lord heard our cry and brought us out. And now we're on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We promise not to take any food from your fields. We will not take any grapes from your vineyard. We will not drink any water from your wells. We will stay on the highway. We will not turn to the right or to the left. Your land will be untouched. Please grant us permission to pass through And the king of Edom responded by saying, you shall not pass through. One step into my land and my soldiers will fight you to the death. And so Israel had to go another way. A straight, short march to the land of promise now turns into a long, annoying detour. And what does this hard providence produce among the people? Impatience. Well, I should say the providence does not produce it. I want to get my theology correct. The providence does not produce it. The providence reveals it. Impatience was lying dormant in the hearts of the people. And then in verse 4 we read, And the people became impatient on the way. Now this is something that is very familiar to us. I mean, just imagine, you're, you're on a road trip. You're trying to get to the beach, and you have to take a detour. That adds another hour to your trip, and maybe there's a, a child screaming in the back seat. And you're just, you want to pull your hair out. This is something we all know. Children get impatient with other children when they won't share toys, when they won't play like the other child wants them to play, right? Parents get impatient. They'll clean a room and then somehow it just gets wrecked again. You put food in front of your children and they don't want to touch it. You spend a whole day out sledding and playing in the snow. And then they'll whine about not getting one thing they wanted. 
you know, we adults, we can grow impatient with our circumstances. Maybe you feel like you're working with the Edomites. Maybe you feel like you've got Edomites interrupting or distracting you from your work. Or you have Edomites scheming to hurt your career or fleece you for cash. We need to beware of impatience. It is very familiar to us. And there's a warning we see in today's text, and it's that impatience has a way of leading us astray. We see this in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You can see the fruit their impatience produced. What do we see? Anger at God, accusation against God, despising the blessings he'd given. They're saying, Lord, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the middle of nowhere? Apparently, they'd forgotten that they'd been slaves under the heavy yoke and whip of Pharaoh. Apparently, they'd forgotten Pharaoh's command to their midwives to kill their newborn sons and throw them into the Nile. They'd forgotten the previous 400 years. They'd existed like animals who lived only to serve and build up the ego and pride of an unjust king. And now they're crying out in frustrated anger, saying, Lord, why couldn't you have just left us there? We had it so much better back under Pharaoh, but instead you brought us out here just so that we could die in the wilderness. They're tired, they're frustrated, they're angry, and they lash out at the one who delivered them and has faithfully provided for them. And then in the following words, we see them say, we don't have food, we don't have water, and we hate this worthless food. What? They accuse the Lord of not providing for them, and then they despise what he has provided. Now, those of us who have small children, we, we know this. Mom, I'm starving. Mom says, well, here's your supper. Well, I don't want that food. I want popcorn and chocolate. That's what they're doing here. God had given them meat. He'd given them bread. He caused water to flow out of a rock. There was a a pool of foul water that a log was thrown into, and it was made clean. They're not starving. They're not dehydrated. They've just allowed their impatience to fester and now they are accusing as worthless the only one who'd never left their side. Their impatience has given birth to unbelief and rebellion. You know how quickly we can forget the kindness of the Lord when we don't get what we want. Well, let's move on to the Lord's response. We see it in verses 6 and 7. And here, again, I want you to look for how fatherly discipline strangely restores. In verse 6, 
We read, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The Lord responds to the unrighteous anger of His people with a holy anger. He punishes them by sending venomous snakes to attack them in their camp. I mean, reading this made me think of the plagues that He sent upon Egypt. And if it was anything like what happened in Egypt, that means that there were poisonous snakes. Not only outside... Striking at your feet when you're going to get water and food and visit the latrine. There were also poisonous snakes who slithered into their tents. Got in their bedding. Coiled up in their cookware. And hid in their boots. There was no escaping them. And there are many people who died. Just as the Lord sent plagues upon Pharaoh, he now sends one upon his people. And he does so as an act of discipline. There are a few things we need to note in the Lord's punishment of His people. First is that the Lord gives them a tangible, horrifyingly clear picture of the wages of sin. I mean, we we hear the wages of sin, and we think of Paul writing to the church in Rome, saying the wages of sin is death. This is what sin deserves. This is where sin leads, death. And they are confronted with that reality in the wilderness. You think of Psalm 1, and we're given two very different pictures. One of the righteous and one of the wicked. The righteous is described as a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. They will not stand in the judgment. They will perish. I'm sure experience has taught us this in our own lives. Maybe as we've seen this in our own lives or as we've seen it in the lives of others who are close to us. That ultimately, the, the end, the terminus of sin is death. It may happen quickly, it might play the long game, but sin only has one end, and that's your destruction. And here we're given a very grim picture of the reality with these fiery serpents in the wilderness. Second thing we see is that God was wholly just in bringing this judgment into their camp. His hard-hearted people had slandered his name and character and provision. They claimed they would rather return to their slave masters in Egypt and dwell with him. And so he punishes them, and he does so justly. During a Q&A panel at the 2014 Ligonier Conference... There's a question asked, and if you see, if you come down to my office and you see the black and white picture of R.C. Sproul, this is, this is where it came from. There's a panel of guys up on the stage, and a question was submitted. The question was this, if God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? 
That was the question. And R.C. Sproul took it. He put his mic up to his mouth, had a very annoyed look on his face and said, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After God had said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for some time. But the worst curse would come on the one who seduced them, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question. Why wasn't it infinitely more severe? We could ask that same question. They grew impatient. They complained against God. They preferred, stated that they preferred Pharaoh over him. They despised and called worthless the food and water he'd given them. They had offended an infinite God who is described as holy, 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 who dwells in unapproachable light. What he does is perfectly just. Third, let's talk about the snakes. Of all things, why would God send fiery serpents as judgment upon his people? Well, the word fiery, which in the Hebrew is seraph, you think of the seraphim in the Bible, those would be flaming ones. Seraph means fire. It's originally an Egyptian word. In Egyptian lore, there were stories about these fiery serpents who protected Pharaoh, which, which I find interesting. You remember the study that we just finished on the kingdom, and you think of the kingdom of the serpent at war with the kingdom of God, and I think it's interesting that it was deadly serpents that were supposedly protecting the king who tried to end the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you can look up pictures of Egyptian hieroglyphics and you'll find them. So what's the Lord communicating by sending these fiery serpents? I believe he's saying to them, all right, people, you want to go back to Egypt? You think Egypt can protect you and provide for you better than I can? Well, then have a taste of Egypt. You want your sin? Taste its bitter fruits. And then recognize that there is only one God before whom the protectors and defenders of godless nations bow down and serve. And it's me. The Lord gives his people what they were asking for, and we're told that many die from the venomous bites. But I started off this portion of the sermon by asking you to look for how fatherly discipline strangely restores. And we've seen the discipline. Where's the restoration? 
Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now something amazing happens here. The people don't harden their hearts as Pharaoh did. They don't shake their fist at the heavens and say, how dare you send these vipers upon us when all we did was grumble and complain. They don't do that. They do the best possible thing. They confess that they'd sinned against the Lord and against Moses. They name their sin. They say, we have spoken against you. And then they seek the Lord's mediator, Moses, to intercede on their behalf. Pray for us, Moses. Pray that the Lord would relent. Pray that he would take away these serpents so that we would live and not be totally destroyed. Now this coming Wednesday night as we continue our study of John Newton on the Christian life, we'll come to a chapter entitled The Discipline of Trials. And we're going to go through a list of benefits that trials can bring about in the Christian life. And I'll I'll have them all listed out for you. They're so helpful. Um, But we'll, we'll look at things such as trials drive Christians to pray. Trials smoke out idols. Trials call back wandering souls. Trials humble proud hearts. Trials kill worldliness. And there's probably about five or six more. But what we'll see is that trials can be such a grace in the Christian life. What a grace that they expose our sin and direct our eyes to the only Savior. In that chapter, John Newton is quoted to say, There are abominations which, like nests of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect they are there till the rod of affliction rouses them. Then they hiss and show their venom. This discovery is indeed very distressing, yet till it is made, we are prone to think of ourselves much less vile than we really are and cannot so heartily abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. That's what happens here. A frustrating hardship aroused these vipers in their hearts. They're shown their sin. They confess it. They humble themselves before the Lord and pray to the mediator to plead for them. And I'd remind you of the words of Charles Wesley that we sang after our time of confession today. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. 
Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Dear saints, when you taste the bitter fruits of your sin, when conviction comes, when trials expose the vipers within, be quick to repent and appeal to our mediator, the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at our final two verses and recognize that the very thing that is killing them is the very thing that leads to life. So Moses prays for the people and he gets a response from the Lord in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. What a strange answer to the prayer. The people say, Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And the Lord responds by telling Moses, I want you to make an image of one of these deadly snakes out of bronze. Affix it to the top of a tall pole. Place that pole in the middle of the camp. And when someone is bitten, they can look to the top of that pole and not die. What a strange answer to prayer. But Moses is obedient to the word of the Lord, and so he makes a bronze serpent. He sets it high on a pole. And verse 9 tells us that if anyone was bitten, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Didn't matter if you'd been bitten once or 20 times. You know, like that poor Irishman in Lonesome Dove who was crossing the river. It didn't matter if you'd been freshly bitten or were near death. Everyone who looked to the serpent on the pole, lived. And how ironic it seems that the very thing that is killing the Israelites, when looked to, gave them life. I can picture Moses in my mind standing at the bottom of the pole, just crying out to people, calling them to look to the brazen serpent and live. And those who looked did live. God's people didn't die off in the wilderness. Their prayer was heard. God made a way. And in time, they would go on to enter the land. But then after verse 9, the story ends. You get to verse 10, and Moses is off to something new. There's no further explanation. As, as strange as it was, it just ends and then moves on. That's, that's all we get. The people set out to camp at a new place. But here's what's important. The bronze serpent is mentioned two more times in the Bible. We'll see it reappear in 2 Kings 18. You don't have to turn there. But approximately 500 years later, King Hezekiah is reforming worship in Judah. And apparently this bronze serpent had survived all those years. And sadly, it had become an object of worship in the temple. It had been given a name. People would come to the temple and burn incense to it and bow down before it and worship it. And so King Hezekiah smashes it to pieces. I mean, it's amazing 
the idolatry that the human heart is capable of. That we could take something like that, a good thing the Lord gives and worship it alongside or over the God who gave it. We need to beware of doing the same thing. So Hezekiah smashes the bronze serpent. It's never seen again, but it is spoken of again. And hopefully your bookmark gives you a clue of where it's spoken of. You can turn there. The Lord Jesus mentions this serpent in John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Right, you know, Numbers 21 may seem like some crazy, obscure story from the Old Testament. But let's just look two verses prior to the most widely quoted passage probably in the Bible. Look at John 3.14. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I know that last verse is one we're very familiar with. And yet maybe we forgot that it's tied to this old story back in Numbers 21 of the serpent on the pole. That's why I love this text. Because in Numbers 21, we have a type. We have a shadow of something greater that's coming. We have a shadow of a greater salvation that God would provide in time. A salvation that would bring His people from certain death to eternal life. And Jesus is saying, you know how the bronze serpent was attached to a tall pole and placed in the middle of the camp? Well, I am going to be nailed to a Roman cross and lifted up on a hill for all to see. And whosoever looks to me and believes will live forever. Now, Nicodemus hadn't been bitten by a snake. You and I, probably most of us, haven't been bitten by a snake. But Scripture does make it clear that our hearts, the center of our being, is corrupted by sin. There is, there is not one part of us that is untainted by sin. Romans 3 says the venom of asps, that's vipers, is under their lips. None of us are untouched by the curse of death. And if left alone, we would die in our sins. But our Father is faithful to His people. And He has made a way for us to have eternal life. And there is no other remedy. You think of the very thing that is killing us is the very thing that leads to life. We see this when Paul is writing to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, For our sake... He, the Father, made Him, Christ, 
to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was lifted up on that cross, He became my sin. He became your sin. And He was justly punished in our place so that we might receive an exchange in His his perfect righteousness. And at this very moment, like Moses, He is serving as our mediator between the church and His Father. Forgive them, Father. Their sin is covered. Now, I would guess that there were some among the camp of Israel who found the idea of the bronze serpent ridiculous, and they refused to look, and they remained in their tent, and they died. The same could be said today. The idea that we are sinners is offensive to our world. The idea of looking to and believing on a Jew who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross That is ridiculous in the eyes of the world. But for those who look to Him and trust in Him alone, He freely offers life. We read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's a word here for those who are outside of the covenant community to look and be brought in and to be healed and find life. But there's also a word here, and this is where I'll end. There's a word here for those who have believed and have looked and have trusted in Him. And it's keep looking. Keep looking every day. I mean, you remember how the Lord answers the prayer. What what did they say? Take the serpents away. And the serpents don't disappear. They're still there. And most assuredly, there were those who kept getting bitten every day, and every day they had to look at the serpent on the pole. You know, them crying out, take the serpents away. And I've been quoting Paul a lot. It reminded me of his words talking about his thorn in the flesh. Talking about the thorn that was given to him. And he pleaded three times with the Lord, Take it! Make it leave me! But the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord allowed the thorn to remain. He allowed the serpents to remain so that we might be reminded of our weakness and our dependence on Him every day. That's the truth about the Christian life. The serpents don't vanish entirely. One day they will, but not yet. We still feel their bite, and we need to look to our Savior every day until we meet Him face to face. I want to read an excerpt from, a, it's from that same John Newton book. It says this. In the cross, 
The Christian finds daily forgiveness, spiritual power, godly motivation, daily healing, and eternal hope. We find a cure only when we take our attention off the bite wounds of our own sin maladies and stop comparing our bites to the wounds of others. It was not by counting their wounds, but by beholding the brazen serpent, the Lord's instituted means of cure that the Israelites were healed. Pouring over sins and evils will not cure them. But he who is typified by the brazen serpent is ever-present, lifted up to our view in the camp, and one believing sight of him will do more to restore peace to the conscience and life to our graces than all our own lamentations and resolutions. May we look to him. Let's pray. Come ye soul by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down by the broken law convicted through the cross behold the crown look to jesus look to jesus look to jesus mercy flows through him alone almighty god Would you raise your son up before our eyes today and tomorrow and the next day that we might find healing. We remember that first we find salvation, but then we find sanctification in that ongoing duty of looking outside of ourselves and looking upward to Jesus Christ. Fix him before our eyes and heal us, O Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.